Welcome to The Way Bible Study Podcast, where we do more walking the walk than talking the talk, with your host, Heath Meadows. Discipleship, Doctrine and Donuts, who said Bible study can't be fun? And now your host, Heath Meadows. This is The Way, and your deep dive into the book of Revelation and the church at Pergamum starts now. Hello, welcome to The Way. I'm your host, Heath Meadows. Hope everybody's having a great week. Today, we will be looking at the third church addressed in Revelation, which existed in the city of ancient Pergamum. Pergamum was the third of the three cities that were trying to vie for supremacy in Asia province. It lay north of Smyrna and 50 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. The geography of Pergamum was very impressive. It was built upon a rocky outcrop and contained the steepest seating for any theater in the Roman Empire. And so we're going to take a look at a few pictures here that I have to show you guys. You can see these are the ancient city of Pergamum. These are the ruins that now are in modern-day Turkey. You can see that this was what's left of the theater and a ancient temple there. So pretty impressive the way it sits up on top of this mountain and overlooks uh, the surrounding area. And also we can say, uh, I think I have a recreation of the actual city, a, a small model, which is, again, impressive with all the different temples, palaces, this in particular, the altar of Zeus, I want to bring attention to. If Ephesus was the center of magic, Pergamon was definitely the center for pagan and emperor worship, no doubt. It was, it was actually the first place, and we'll learn that here in a minute, that instituted uh, emperor worship. Here's some more, again, ancient ruins in, in, in present-day Turkey. But uh, again, impressive city. It had a population of around 200,000, which probably made it the fifth largest city in the empire. It was the first city to build a temple to a Roman ruler, Augustus. This is important based on the imagery of Jesus that is in the, in the introduction and conclusion of the leather. Jesus, as the divine warrior, pronouncing judgment. The emperor's right of the sword or death penalty is important to kind of contrast with the image that Jesus is supplying or giving to the actual believers in Pergamum. So we're going to take this actually verse by verse. I thought it would be better with this particular letter to do so. And I'm going to throw up the scripture on the screen here for everybody to see. But we'll look at the first verse here. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is the image of Jesus as divine warrior and judge. In a city where Caesar worship dominated, Jesus' authority needed to be clearly communicated to the church. This is the fear of the Lord, which leads to righteousness. This also stands as a polemic to the Roman judicial system of Pergamum that persecuted Christians. So we're moving on. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So what I want to kind of spend a little bit of time on here is this whole idea of the throne of Satan or Satan's throne. In his commentary in Revelation, David On lists several possibilities for the throne of Satan. The first one is the temple of Augustus. Again, that 
the whole idea of Caesar emperor worship. The second one is the great altar of Zeus, altar in ancient times, very readily equated throne. And so we got to keep that in mind. This is my personal pick and favorite, and I'll explain here in a minute why. The judge's benches, the actual judgment seat where tribunals were held, could also be something that John was referring to. The temple of, I'm going to probably butcher this, Asclepios. I think that's how you pronounce it. This was a Roman god of healing and could actually be a part of a story in the Gospel of John concerning Jesus performing a healing miracle at the Pool of Bethesda. If you remember this story, if you've read it, Jesus goes to the Pool of Bethesda where, again, one translation, several translations leave out the part of the angel stirring the waters. I think there's a particular reason for that. So in seminary, I actually did a a brief study on this and found that there may be some links to what to this Roman god of healing. It was very common for Romans to take over certain temple complexes in conquered cities and make them a place for their gods. And so there's some theories there that maybe this is what happened in the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus going there basically was proclaiming his superiority to all the gods. I encourage anybody that wants to dive into it to, to study that. It's pretty cool. But again, number five, Pergamon was a center of persecution. The city itself, Pergamon was a major center of imperial cult. Again, the city itself, Pergamon as an important center for Greco-Roman religion. So Beale, in his commentary, likes this one and number six as a, as the explanation of the throne of Satan. He thinks that it was a combination and that was the whole city that John was referring to. And there's also the fact that the hill that it was built on of the large, I don't know if you want to call it a mountain, but at least it's a very large hill that it was built on was a serpentine shape. So they said, well, maybe that's part of why John called it the throne of Satan because, you know, the serpent and Satan are linked. My personal pick, is the altar of Zeus. And my main reason for this is the altar's link to modern history, specifically an Antichrist figure known as Hitler. Fascinating. Yes, it is fascinating. So this story kind of reminds me of one of my favorite action heroes. Yeah. In 1864, German engineer Carl Heumann excavated the altar of Zeus from ancient Pergamum, located in modern Turkey. Heumann had the altar brought back to Berlin stone by stone and its own museum built for it. This museum opened in 1930. A few years later, the architect Albert Speer was commissioned by Hitler to design the parade grounds for the huge Nazi rallies we see old film of, the black and white film, you know, the just the incredible crowds that Hitler was drawing. He designed that whole field. And using the altar uh, of Zeus as his model, Speer created the Zeppelin Tribune, where Hitler would eventually use the phrase, Final Solution, one of the most satanic and evil plans of all of history. This plan cost 6 million Jews their lives and would be known as the Holocaust. Historically, Holocaust means a sacrificial offering burnt completely on an altar. Coincidence? I don't think so. Nazi fascination with the occult and occult practices is no secret, and I wouldn't be surprised if the altar of Zeus 
is used for a model to build future structures for a coming world leader in the very near future. And I want to show you guys some pictures that to me are, are very obvious that this design was inspired by the altar of Zeus. So here is the altar of Zeus. And you can see that it's three-sided, has a ton of columns. The altar, the actual, where the burnt offering would, would be back in here. It kind of does look like a throne, you know. It's got the back and the two arms, and you could, you know, sit there. But you can tell it's rather large. Now, these motifs are actually, one is Athena and one is Zeus, and they are actually fighting the, the giants and expelling giants. Now, there's a whole kind of study in that where you can probably link some things back to Genesis 6, but we don't, we're not going to do that in this episode. So again, kind of interesting. There is another, without all the people standing around, you can see the altar of Zeus a little bit better here. But again, on a grand scale, this, this thing would have been huge. And here is the Zeppelin Tribune. And you can definitely see the architecture is the same. Here's the sides, the columns. This would have been the center of where Hitler would have spoke and would have announced the final solution. And here it is with a very large crowd, and of course the German military. Very interesting indeed. And I, I don't think, again, this is any coincidence. John does draw some attention to his faithful witness. This also harkens to Isaiah 43, 10, 12. If you want to look that up, it's kind of John basically saying, this is what a faithful witness looks like. But moving on to the next part of scripture, reread but i have a few things against you so even though these guys were in the heart of satan's throne jesus says hey man you're doing some things here that are not good you're holding fast to my name you don't deny the faith but you're allowing some things that are going to be a serious problem so he goes on and says you have some there who hold the teaching of balaam who taught balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we want to spend a few minutes here because I think this is very important for modern-day Christianity because I think some of this goes on today. We have to know and understand who Balaam was and how John's making a connection with Balaam to the Old Testament. He is an Old Testament figure. So we need to look at the story of Balaam, which is found in Numbers 22 through 24. Now, I'm not going to read those chapters. I highly encourage you to. There, there's some really good stuff in those two chapters. It, this is the story of as Balaam is trying to get his donkey to walk along, the donkey talks to him because there's an angel with a sword standing in front of him and Balaam doesn't see it. But then Balaam goes into this set of oracles um, and, and he actually prophesies the coming Messiah. Now, this is one of the first notable prophecies of Jesus. And it's a false prophet that's given it. Isn't that interesting? So your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to find the prophetic word in the scripture reference. So good luck. Balaam was a prophet for hire. He led Israel into idolatry and sexual immorality. John draws a link between certain people who enter the church at Pergamum and Balaam. He says, ah, these guys are doing the same thing like this prophet for hire, this false prophet slash teacher did back in the day of when Israel was straight out of Egypt, so to speak. These people were teaching that participating in festivals and pagan culture were okay, as well as sexual immorality. After all, grace covers the Christian. Does that sound familiar? Well, 
Nothing much changed in 2,000 years. These stains always come around and rear their ugly heads eventually. There was a tremendous amount of pressure to participate in these festivals and, econ- and these ceremonies and rituals due to being either ostracized economically or socially if you didn't participate. So these teachers may have even thought that they were teaching, weren't really teaching anything wrong, but they were clearly destroying the Christian witness in the city. In his commentary, Beale writes this. He says, Of course, their teaching would ultimately dilute the exclusive claims of the church's Christian witness to the world, which was still the church's strength. Perhaps part of the motivation for the teacher's attitude was the threat of economic deprivation, which may have facilitated the comparison with Balaam, since the original narrative and subsequent reflections on its associate, his deceptive motives, with financial gain. So Balaam has become known as the quintessential false prophet teacher, enticing believers away from the things of God in order to make a profit. Again, that should sound familiar. We would do well to watch for Balaam's of our day. It is interesting to note that the story of Balaam has was he was threatened by the angel of the Lord with the sword if he did not stop what he was doing and later died by the sword because he did not Stop what he was doing. Here is the image of Christ with the sword, and it is much more frightening image that he's portraying here in the book of Revelation. Now, we've already discussed, and I'm not going to dive into it, but I want you, I'm going to just kind of point there so you guys can think about this. We've already discussed John using Old Testament imagery of the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord with Jesus' description at that first chapter. So I want you to think about that. This is a very clever way of saying some things that immediately these believers would have picked up on that maybe some of us today won't. And that's a part of, again, reading the book of Revelation. If you don't know your Old Testament, and if you don't realize how much imagery is used in the Old Testament without reference, it's basically allegory, you're going to be lost in the sauce, so to speak. So we want to make sure that we understand these references. And if you don't, take the time. No one's in a hurry. Take the time to go to to Numbers 22 through 24 and read that story if you haven't. Again, it's a great story, and it has one of the, the some of the coolest, I guess. One of the things I like to say, if God can use a donkey, he can use me. And that kind of will keep you humble. So make sure you check that story out when you get a chance. So the Nicolaitans and those that followed the ways of Balaam are very closely linked. Both seem to be leading the people of God into idolatry and immorality. Now, we've already said we don't know much about the Nicolaitans, but I think there is some, a clue to what their name means. So Balaam means he consumes the people. Now, what Balaam kind of did is he tricked, instead of pronouncing a curse, he had King Balak, who was the king of Moab, entice the men of Israel into sexual immorality with the women of Moab, then eventually would get them to worship their gods. And that, of course, did not end well for them. But his name means he consumes the people, probably something to do with commerce. The Nicolaitans means, that word in Greek means he overcomes the people. Very, very similar. And so there is a, there's a link here that cannot be denied. So we're going to move on to the next part of this scripture. And it says in 16, 
Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, there's that image. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The hidden manna is a reward the church will receive at the end of time, which is why it is hidden. There's also some who link it to Jeremiah. There's a story that Jeremiah hid manna in the ark before the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the the Babylonians. It's kind of a Jewish tradition and that it would be revealed when the Messiah came with back. This is, we're talking second coming to rule and reign. And this is very compatible with the whole hiddenness theme. So that could, again, John could be alluding to that traditional story. It's kind of a cool story. Another Jewish tradition was that the manna, given to Israel like this, was hidden in the high heavens from the very beginning of creation. So again, it's this idea of hiding. Whitestone, it's debated among scholars. It's really hard to nail this one down. I think it has multiple meanings, and maybe some of the meaning of the whitestone has been lost throughout antiquity. But the likely meaning comes from stones being used in trials where a white stone meant acquittal and a black stone meant guilt. Only Jesus knows that are truly faithful to him, that name that only they know. That This describes intimate fellowship in the marriage supper of the Lamb. White stones were also used as admittance to festivals. I think that's interesting. So it could be a double meaning. You're acquitted. There's a name that only you and I will know, and that name makes it's a very personal thing just between you and Jesus. Makes it a very intimate relationship. Again, it's about relationship, not religion. And... It's also an admittance into the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I think that's kind of, I think there's several meanings going on there. Believers receive Christ's name to indicate their identity with him. And it also is an allusion to Isaiah 62 2 and Isaiah 65 15, which we will finish this study looking at those verses very quickly. So 62 2 says, The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. Ain't that awesome? And then the next 6515, you shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name. So that's pretty awesome. John is actually uh, alluding to that verse when he's talking about the new name. So I hope you enjoyed this study. We're going to end it there today. And until next time, keep walking the way. God bless. This concludes our program for today. We hope you are enjoying the journey. Until next time, keep living the word and walking the way.